Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Your Father, thank you for this, uh, this passage. Thank you for your scriptures, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. Pray that you would open our ears, open our minds, Lord. Help us to discern what you would have us to, uh, to learn from this passage today. Pray that you would guide Tom uh, to bring us the message you would have him to give, Lord. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. I have been just uh, in awe as I've once again gone to this prayer and looked at what Jesus said to his father the night before his death on our behalf. A dear friend of mine who lives out of state shared a story with me, a true story about uh, an episode that happened with his preacher at his church. He said, uh, he said one morning the preacher delivered a message that he had clearly diligently prepared and it was very heartfelt and after he presented the message a first-time visitor walked up to him and shook his hand and said I just wanted to let you know I won't be here again I'm this is it and so the preacher said to him well you know that saddens me but I wonder if you would share with me what it is that that drove you away and the man simply said sure you did not exhaust the passage. And that's true. That's a true story that happened. And, and I can tell you that if that man was here this morning, he absolutely would not be here next week. Because this prayer has been exhausting me for 45 years. And I have yet to exhaust even one single verse of it. When I say it has exhausted me, what I mean is, is I, I go to this prayer and I read it and I, I think about what Jesus is saying and I just sit there in dumbstruck awe realizing that the beauty and the power and the, the reach of this prayer is it's deeper, it's longer, it's wider, it's heavier than I will ever, ever comprehend. Now that certainly does not mean that I and you should not spend time with it. In fact, that's every reason that we should. Because our lives are lives of adoration and awe. That's what we are called to as believers. This uh, that we have in John chapter 17 is actually, the, this is the real Lord's Prayer, right? Now, if you want to know how you and I should pray, a good spot to go is Matthew 6 to what is traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, but should be called the Believer's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer because it's Jesus teaching His followers how they're supposed to pray. If you want to know how Jesus prays, especially how He prayed in intercession for us the night before He went to the cross, this is where you need to go. This is the real Lord's Prayer. Back in John chapter 12, the passage that, that came just before the upper room discourse that we've been looking at for several weeks, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat 
falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he said, now my soul, a few verses later, he said, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. In that passage in John 12, Jesus, when Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name, He was speaking of the glorification of His Father that would come about through the death and resurrection of the Son. The metaphor of the grain of wheat falling to the earth dead and producing much fruit is a picture of life arising out of death. It's a picture of resurrection life. In Isaiah 53, the prophet uh, spoke of this same glorification of the Father through the Son nearly 700 years before it actually happened. After foretelling Messiah's substitutionary death and his burial in the tomb of a rich man, Isaiah wrote these words, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, If he, Messiah, would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's the fruit. He will prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the Father, will see it and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. See, that prophecy, 700 years before the fact, was about Jesus purchasing and then securing resurrection life for us through His own death and resurrection, satisfying the wrath of God against our sin by a guilt offering of Himself. And and that's what Jesus was about to do the day after He prayed the prayer that we're looking at here in John 17. He was about to purchase eternal life for us through His death. And then He was about to secure that gift for us by rising from the dead, guaranteeing our resurrection. Throughout His final address to His disciples, the evening before his death in John 13 through 16, Jesus has been talking to them, to those those men. Judas was sent out pretty quickly in chapter 13. And in all the rest of those chapters, Jesus is just talking to the 11, the the true disciples. And he's been preparing them for his death and resurrection and then for his ascension, for his departure from the earth to return to His eternal glory at His Father's side. He's been telling them many critically important things that they and we, who have come to Christ after them, would need to know so that we can carry on with the work of Jesus after His departure. Now in chapter 17, with the disciples still right there with Him, and I think this is not in the garden yet, this is on the on the road, on the way to the garden, because the very next 
passage talks about him entering the garden. The disciples are right there with them, and he turns his attention away from them, and he starts talking to his father. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now over and over in this gospel, as you know, the multitudes, the crowds that were, that were following the lead of the Jewish authorities had tried to get a hold of Jesus. They tried to lay their hands on him, either to escort him to the temple authorities so they could deal with him, or sometimes they were trying to get their hands on him so they could kill him right on the spot. They could stone him to death or they could throw him off a cliff. And what happened over and over when they tried to do that? Well, it's like he just walked right through their midst and they they couldn't get their hands on him. It was miraculous. And John tells us repeatedly, he tells us why that, that was the case. He said, his hour had not yet come. But uh, but now it had. <laughs> the very hour for which Jesus had come from heaven to earth, the hour that was ordained before the creation of any material thing, the hour for the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father. What did Jesus mean by the words, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you? Or if you go back to John 12, what did he mean when he said, Father, glorify your name? Through me. What does it mean to glorify something? Well, the essential meaning of the word glorify is to display the glory of. So it's not much help until you know what the word glory means, right? So let's talk talk about what glory means. The Old Testament word that's translated glory, if you go back to its simplest and most foundational connotation, means weightiness. If you want to write down Job 6, verses 1 and 2, that's the, where the verbal root of the same word shows up. And Job's talking about the weight of, of his, his iniquity. Weightiness. If every attribute of God and every aspect of his character had physical weight, there would be no scale in existence that could measure the weightiness of even one of them. In both Testaments, the word glory, when it is applied to God, speaks of immeasurable quantity and quality. It speaks, glory speaks of immeasurable quantity and quality. It doesn't matter whether it's weight or brightness or magnitude or abundance or power. It can't be measured. It speaks of priceless worth, of impressiveness that cannot be represented in words, of beauty and majesty that cannot be apprehended or explained. To glorify God means to put on display, to show off to men and to angels and to all creation that which infinitely exceeds our ability to take in. When God is glorified, when the beauty and perfection and magnitude and impact and reach of God's character and of God's ways are put on display, there is no possibility that those who behold that glory will be able to take it in. 
See, to glorify God is to display the immeasurable. And that's exactly what Jesus asked His Father to do in this prayer. He asked His Father to show off the glory of the Son so that the Son could show off the glory of the Father. Jesus had been showing off the glory of the Father ever since He took on humanity. And in John's prologue to this Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, He said, the Word, the Word that was with God and was God in the beginning, the Word who is Jesus Christ, became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His weightiness. We beheld His immeasurable worth as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. <laughs> full. There, there, there's the word that's an understatement. Right. And then a few verses later, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, He has revealed Him. Jesus had been showing off His Father's glory to man ever since He arrived on earth in everything that He said and everything that He did. But by the metrics that men generally apply to things to determine their weightiness, their impressiveness, their worth, Jesus wasn't glorious at all. We talked about that some in the worship this morning. In fact, Isaiah 53 says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was, it says, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And that was never more true than later this very night after Jesus asked his father to glorify him. See, to the eyes of sinful men, Jesus was never more inglorious than He was that night and the next day. Right? And that actually turns out to be very, very important for understanding what Jesus was asking His Father to do here in this prayer. It was not His physical glory that Jesus was asking His Father to show off. We'll get to see the physical glory of the ascended, glorified Christ later. It'll be the most majestic and beautiful sight our eyes have ever beheld. John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, got a glimpse of it, and he tried to describe it in Revelation chapter 1. And if you read that, your conclusion will be, he didn't have the words. See, it was not physical glory that Jesus was now asking His Father to show off. It was, just as Jesus said in John chapter 12, the glory of His name. The glory of His name. That means, beloved, that means the glory of His character, of who He is. His character and His ways. Now here's a question. Back in 1 Samuel 16, when God sent Samuel to pick out and anoint God's chosen king from among the eight sons of Jesse. And that chosen king turned out to be the youngest and no doubt the smallest and least impressive of the eight sons, a teenage boy named David. You remember what God said to Samuel? He said, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. He said that with one of the other brothers first. And then when he, he said, for God sees not as man sees. 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Considering that declaration about what God looks at, which glory do you suppose will show you more of what you need to know about God? The physical, visible glory of God or the glory of His character and of His ways? Which of those did Jesus show off when He was here the first time? See, Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to show men what His Father looked like. He came from heaven to earth to show us what His Father is like. He came to display to men the same, the same glory that Yahweh declared to Moses 1,400 years earlier. If you turn to Exodus 33, you'll see a passage about halfway through where, where Moses said to God, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's answer to Moses' request was, I myself, verse 19, Exodus 33, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then he said, but Moses, you can't see me because if you see me, you're going to die. So here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in a crevice in the rock and as I pass by, I'll cover you with my hand so you can't actually see my glory. Now, you might think well, Moses, that Moses would have said, well, what good is that? Right? If you keep reading, you go to Exodus 34 and you see God's fulfillment of this promise. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and he proclaimed. He hid himself and then he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, that's Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant love and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave sin unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And you know what Moses did after God made that proclamation about himself? He did what men always do when they behold the glory of God. He fell down on his face in adoration and worship. That's the glory that we behold in Christ. The glory of God's name. See, God's name means His character. His ways. Who He is. What He's like. Moses had beheld the glory of God. Not with his eyes. <laughs> he had beheld the glory of God's name. And now, beloved, on the night of Jesus' arrest, what Moses had heard proclaimed 1,400 years earlier, Jesus was just about to show off more vividly, more comprehensively, more perfectly than the world had ever seen it. He was about to show off the name 
of God. The glory of His name. The very next day, mankind would see all that God had declared to Moses about Himself put on perfect display. In one person and in one event. They would see His justness. They would see His righteousness. They would see His wrathful hatred of the sin of man that so grievously violates His character. They would see that our holy God does not leave sin, any sin, unpunished. But in that same person and in that same event, they would at the same time see the compassion of God, the grace of God, the forbearance of God, the forgiveness of God, the steadfast covenant love of God put on display as no man had ever seen it before. At the cross of Jesus, God was just about to show off His character and His ways to men and to angels and to all of creation more completely, more fully, more comprehensively, and more personally than creation had ever beheld God. And in that incomparable display of His character, Jesus was going to purchase eternal life for all whom the Father had given to Him. In verses 2 and 3 of John 17, Jesus' request of His Father doesn't speak directly or explicitly of His sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection that He would very soon accomplish. His request here in these two verses looks beyond the means to the outcome. He looks beyond the cause of our life in Him to the reality of our life in Him. He speaks to His Father about showing off His character through the giving of eternal life to all whom His Father had given to Him. After praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Jesus speaks to His Father of this unspeakable gift through which both the Son and the Father would be glorified. He says, even as You gave the Son authority over all flesh, that to all to whom, to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. And then He said, this is eternal life. That they may know You, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Verse 3 may just be the most worldview-defining verse in the whole Bible. We'll get there in just a minute. But first, there's something we need to see in verse 2. Who gets to have the eternal life that Jesus gives? Who gets to have it? He says, all whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, I'm, I'm aware that we don't all agree in this room about the role of free will in our salvation. And that's okay. Because I firmly believe that each of us is, is going to encounter people in the kingdom of God who disagreed with us about that here on earth. But i got to tell you, just this is just me. I see God's sovereign choosing all over this gospel and I see it all over this prayer. A little later in the same prayer, Jesus says to His Father, I have manifested Your name to the men 
whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Three verses later, he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Three times in the early part of this prayer, verses 2, 6, and 9, Jesus says he's making these requests of the Father on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. And then he says it is to them that I give eternal life. Not to everyone in the world, nobody says that, but to, at least nobody we know, (laughs) but to those whom the Father has given to Jesus out of the world. Now, I cannot get away from, from what it appears to me Jesus is saying, and that is that in the case of these 11 men, and of all of us who have come to faith after them, God the Father had already laid claim to us before he gave us to his son so that his son could give us eternal life. We already belong to the Father. The Father gave us to the Son as a gift, and the, God, and, and, and the Son gave the gift a gift. The Son gave those whom the Father gave to him, the Son gave eternal life. If I'm missing something in that progression, please feel free to point it out. But I've looked at it over and over again, and it seems pretty straightforward to me. It also seems to me to be perfectly in keeping with what John declared right at the beginning of this gospel about how men come to receive Jesus. John 1, 11 through 13, John said, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name. And then he says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't see how the rebirth of a lost soul into new identity as a child of God can somehow be of the will of man and explicitly not of the will of man at the same time. And Jesus says, uh, John says, it's not of the will of man. And as I see it, all of that places all of the glory squarely on God. That's why to, to me it's so beautiful. The declaration that our salvation proceeds entirely from the will and choosing and saving work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit places all of the glory for our salvation on God alone. Without any hint of it coming from us. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying to his Father at the beginning of this marvelous prayer. He's saying, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you by giving life to the to the people that you you gave to me. The life that I alone have authority to give. All right. God gave us eternal life in Christ when we possessed and deserved only eternal death. I believe pretty much everybody here has agreed on that. He gave us eternal life when we possessed and deserved only eternal death. And that's where Jesus' attention is fixed in this amazing prayer to his Father on the night before his death in our place. See, his attention is on his and his Father's glory in the work of our salvation. But I also need to point out 
that throughout this gospel, when Jesus is addressing lost people regarding the same gift, the gift of eternal life, his focus is very decisively on God's call to them to believe. John 3, verses 14 to 18, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. So how does that person get eternal life? They believe in Him. Okay, next verse. For God loved the world in this way, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Then he says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what makes the difference in that verse between those who have eternal life and those who don't? Those who believe in Jesus have it, and those who don't, don't. John 3, verse 36, first part, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When? Now. And does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into life. Whoever hears my word and believes the testimony of my Father about me has eternal life. If you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you from the eternal death that you already possess and absolutely deserve because of your sinful violation of His holiness, the same thing all of us deserve, If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to give you eternal life that you absolutely do not deserve, then Jesus' words to His Father in this prayer in John 17 are not the words you need to be concerned with. His word to you is very straightforward. He commands you to repent and believe. That means to turn away from whatever is keeping you from trusting in Him. To turn away from whatever you're trusting. It might be your goodness. It might be your parents' goodness. It might be the money you give to worthy causes. It might be the good things and kind things you do for other people. God's saying to you, that's all garbage. That's, that's you acting like you have something to give me. And that's never been the case. So turn from those things and trust my Son. He's your only salvation. He's the only provision for your sin. Believe in my Son, the Father says, and you will have eternal life. You can count on that. Now what is this life that Jesus gives? Verse 3 starts with the words, this is eternal life. And when you encounter a verse that begins with, with the proclamation that it's going to tell you what life is, you think maybe you need to pay attention. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
If what Jesus says in that verse is true, and it most certainly is, then most of humanity is wrong about what life is. And if you're going to be wrong about something, that's a pretty big deal. They are clinging to a crummy imitation of life and they don't know that that's what they're doing because they haven't got a clue what life really is. And they're being lied to at every turn. And here's what's really sad to me. I mean, that's very sad. That should provoke us to tell people all the time what real life is. But here's something I find just extraordinarily sad. And that is that some who actually do have real life because they've trusted in Jesus Christ are so faked out by the crummy imitation of it that the world offers that they're confused. They spend most of their time protecting things that they think somehow constitute life, but that have nothing whatsoever to do with life. If you're defining life in any other terms than the amazingly simple terms that Jesus presents in John 17.3, your definition is wrong. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's it. That's life. <laughs> That's life. Everything else isn't. There is a vast, infinite difference between existing and being alive. Life is relationship with God. It is intimate, personal knowledge of the living God. Life is not merely something that includes relationship with God. Life is relationship with God. Let me say that again because it's important and I didn't make it up. Life isn't something that includes relationship with God. Life is relationship with God. Everything else isn't life. And by the way, there was a really good reason Jesus prayed this prayer in the hearing of His disciples. You know what that reason was? He wanted them to hear it. He did that a lot with His prayers, by the way. And He wants us to hear it. God wants you and me to know that the life that He has given to you is relationship with Him. And without that, there isn't any life. And, and here's what's really cool. It's not just life. It's eternal life. And you know what that means? That means it lasts forever. That means once you have it, you can't lose it. Isn't, isn't that exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of My hand. And then He explains why He's so certain of that. He says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you want to know how to undo the gift of eternal life in a Christian, for a Christian, all you have to do is find something in creation that's stronger than God, that's bigger than God, that's greater than God. That's all you have to do. I won't be up here again until after Thanksgiving. We got some great speakers between now and then. So I want to close by challenging you to spend some time in the next couple of weeks 
don't, don't walk away from this passage and wait till the next passage, right? Spend some time pondering and thinking about and talking about and praying back to God what it means that life, your life, is relationship with God. Take at least an hour, at least once, in the next couple of weeks, and grab your family and sit down, or if you can't get to your family, grab some of your brothers and sisters in Christ and sit down and talk about this. Talk about the ramifications of it. And then pray, pray back to God what it means that your life is your relationship with God and your knowledge of God that nothing else, nothing else, nothing else constitutes real life. So much of what ails us as Christians and what ails the church would just go right out the window if we got this right. I'm going to give you a very short list of things maybe to help with help stir some thinking. But as I give these, I want to tell you, it's, it scares me to, to give you a list like this because it always feels to me like it's going to limit what you're thinking about. And so don't let it do that, okay? If real life is intimately, personally knowing God and nothing else is real life, how does that affect what you zealously advocate during your time on this earth? How does it affect what you consider to be super important? If real life is intimately, personally knowing God, how does that affect what you invest most of your time doing? How does it affect what you invest most of your money in? If real life is your relationship with God and nothing else is, how does that affect what makes you joyful and what robs you of joy? What makes you anxious and fearful? If the only life that's real is relationship with God, how does that affect what you say to unbelievers when they're talking about what makes life worth living? When they're talking about what makes them excited, what they're passionate about? One of my brothers here loves to ask people, what are you passionate about? One of my sisters does too. It's a great question. You know another really good question? What do you think life is? Very illuminating, the answers that you'll get from that one. What do you think life is? If real life is intimate, personal knowledge of God and nothing else is, how does that affect the words that you say to your fellow believers? Guys, we need to be reminding each other all the time that all that other stuff isn't life. You're going to run into believers all of your time here on this earth who are distracted and confused and they're looking for life in places where it cannot be found. 
And what's crazy is that, you know, they, they know that their everlasting existence depends on what Jesus did on the cross. They know that there's no other, there is no other redemption than that. And yet they're, they're being lied to all the time from every corner and they get confused. So let's help one another not be confused about this. All we got to do is point out what God says, right? Just two more. How does it affect, how does knowing this, that this is the only real life, how does it affect the words that you say to someone whose health is failing or who is clearly approaching the end of their physical life? And how does it, it affect you? There are some in this room whose health is failing. Probably don't have that much longer on this earth. I don't know. You, you know, we, we're supposed to be very clear about all that. And one more, this gets real specific. If real life is intimate, personal knowledge of God, relationship with the living God, and nothing else is, how does that affect the counsel that you give to someone whose marriage is a nightmare of loveless coexistence or constant humiliation or even abuse? Guys, there is nothing that matters more than knowing that your life is your relationship with God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's life. And nothing else is. And since God has left us here to show Him off, don't you think we should pay real close attention when God's Word tells us there's something that He did to show Himself off? Jesus said God displayed the glory of His great name by giving us real eternal life, and then he told us exactly what that life is. So doesn't it make sense that if you and I are called to glorify God, we need to be pointing people to that life. We know how to glorify God. Show people how he glorified himself. If you're a child of God, but you spend most of your time thinking of your life as a child of God, as if it's just a bunch of propositions to be believed and things to be done, I urge you to spend some serious time camping out in this amazing prayer, all of it. It'll straighten you out. It will forever change the way you think about God and the way you think about life. When we resume this study of John, I promise we'll spend a lot of time camping out in this prayer, maybe more than you want to. Dear Father, we don't have to ask You to show us Your glory. You already did. In Your Son, we see the perfection of Your character and Your ways, and we see all of those things on perfect display. And in His gift to us of eternal life, (laughs) we get to enjoy You forever. We thank You and we praise You In the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.